Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and uh, today I was getting ready to record another podcast and I was looking through older episodes and I realized that there's some really good podcasts that haven't seen the light of day in a long time and are still very relevant. So uh, I decided I'm going to start reposting some of the older content uh, and just uh, relabel it like recycled. Uh, one, that way we can post a little more frequently. And two, some of these really good topics uh, can just be easier for you guys to find. Really appreciate the opportunity to present this morning. And uh, just by way of introduction, I'm presenting from my background as both a uh, Special Forces Battalion Surgeon and the current Special Operations Combat Medic Director here at Fort Bragg. By way of disclaimer, opinions and assertions that we're going to go over today are my own. None of these belong to official Department of Defense, U.S. SOCOM, or the Special Warfare Medical Group. Again, this is an amalgamation of material and best practices that we've compiled based on available literature and expert guidance. In addition, the U.S. Army ISR, as many of you know, and the Prolonged Field Care Working Group are currently developing a field uh, clinical practice guideline for traumatic rab death uh, or CRUSH syndrome. And so I'm deeply indebted to Dr. Tom Walters, Ian Stewart, Kevin Chung, Doug Powell, Sean Keenan, and many others for their contributions to field management of this very difficult problem. So some of what you're going to see on the following slides is from the not yet released draft of that field CPG. Uh, some of it is from other available literature and sources, including our current tactical and medical protocols. By way of objectives, really my intent today is to use crush syndrome as a surrogate injury for what a really bad day would look like for a point of injury care provider in our new operational environment. Pictured on the bottom right is, is one of our friendly medevac aircraft. Obviously, we are entering a new paradigm, a new operational context that may not allow the robust theater evacuation assets we've all come to know and love and depend upon over the last 14 years of war. Because of that, crush syndrome represents an example of how to best prepare for a severely or critically injured patient in that new operational environment. We're gonna present it using the CPG approach or the prolonged field care approach, which is a minimum better best methodology, or in this case, a best better good methodology, which allows for operational or tactical constraints, as well as logistical constraints that often confront a medic in an austere environment. And finally, we'll close with some controversies and common questions that arise from the point of injury care providers with this particular injury. I would like to paint the context of our discussion in what our current commander of the United States Special Operations Command, General Votel, calls the gray zone. Our next five to 10 years of war will likely not be traditional peace war construct. Uh, and as he says in his underlines here, these conflicts defy our traditional views of war and requires to invest time and effort in ensuring we prepare for proper uh, mitigation of the ambiguity. So really what we're talking about is an ambiguous environment for us as medical providers. That means we will no longer have a robust network of evacuation, logistical supply, or forward surgical capability. Why traumatic rhabdo or crush syndrome then fits should be fairly intuitive. 
Uh, our worldwide areas of operation are often in developing nations where natural disasters, earthquakes, and poor infrastructure can result in significant mass casualty events. Combine this with recent terrorist efforts to destroy infrastructure, and you can see where crush is no longer a question of if, but when. Crush syndrome at the physiologic level, or thinking in terms of pathophysiology, is basically an injury due to leakage of intracellular contents of the circulation. This results from two major mechanisms of injury, and that is direct injury to the muscle tissue itself from the crush, as well as a hypoxic or hypoperfusion injury due to compressed circulation and impairment of circulation to the muscle cells. All of this then directly impacts the end organ, the kidney, with a pigment nephropathy. From a nephrologist perspective, I stole this uh, from Dr. Weiss. Dr. Weiss is the uh, medical consultant for many of our nation's bigger endurance races, including the Western States 100-mile endurance race. Uh, as he's presenting as a medical consultant for, for that race, they obviously experience a pretty significant degree or, or number of athletes who suffer from exertional rhabdo. You can, I only present this slide to show the complexities of the field management of this type of a problem, especially in a resource-constrained environment where you don't have cases and cases of intravenous fluids. What's interesting on Dr. Weiss's algorithm is that in nowhere does he include measuring urine output or strict I's and O's as a field management measure. I think this is one area where we can push the ball forward on the field management or austere medical management of rhabdo. Of course, many ICU and trauma providers are familiar with the course of rhabdomyolysis in the intensive care unit. Extrapolating this to the field environment, however, proves somewhat more difficult. As we mentioned, we no longer have the ability for medics to call, get a helicopter, and get a patient out within one to two hours. Our medics are now thinking in terms of caring for these guys in days. To extrapolate that out, I used a, a case uh, from a publication in 2006 of daptomycin-induced rhabdomyolysis. This is a 45-year-old woman with acute myeloid leukemia who was treated with daptomycin for a vancomycin-resistant aphasium pneumonia. You'll note that the daptomycin was started on day one, stopped on day 10. For 24 hours after stop cessation of the uh, physiologic insult, she continued to experience a rise in detectable urine myoglobin, as well as her CPK, serum CPK measurements continued to rise for the following four days. If you're a medic taking care of a crushed rhabdo patient, this scares you. This gets your attention because this is no longer a matter of following the algorithm for the first couple hours. It then becomes a problem where you realize this patient's gonna get sicker over the next two to three days. That capability gap is highlighted in our current Tactical Medical Emergency Protocols, or TMEPs. Visualized here is a very poor photograph of the eighth edition, our most recent edition of these TMEPs protocols. On that, I'll just walk you through some of the controversies and the basic outline of how the protocol goes. This protocol is broken down in terms of extrication. So it's a phased approach, and it basically describes what the medic's supposed to do prior to extrication, immediately prior to lifting the vehicle or whatever it is that's crushing the patient and removing them, and then immediately following extrication. It's our opinion that this really only covers the first two to four hours of taking care of this patient. After that, the medic is left to wonder what happens next. In addition, there are several controversial treatments recommended here, including empiric use of sodium bicarbonate, 
mannitol and calcium chloride or calcium gluconate. So going back to our operational context, our medical context for this discussion, prolonged field care, as Major Doug Powell here at Womack puts it so well, is taking care of a patient you know should be somewhere else for longer than you want. The approved NATO definition is, is written out here. Really what this represents in our next era of conflict is a paradigm shift, that our point of injury providers are going to be asked to hold sicker patients longer with less resources. Crush syndrome represents an excellent injury for prolonged field care problems for that reason. The medic may not have access to laboratory testing. They will possibly not even have a cardiac monitor. They will certainly have limited intravenous fluid supplies and no ability to provide renal replacement therapy. A brief word on how medics think or how our point of injury providers think. We all in the Department of Defense are familiar with operational planning or a mission timeline. The mission timeline is an excellent framework for a medic to establish taking care of a critically ill patient. In other words, what happens in that first two hours, then the, then the succeeding four hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, what types of injuries do they expect and how do their treatments change over the course of the evolution of the pathophysiology? So all we're doing is applying an operational construct, a mission planning timeline to a plan to treat these complex patients. This is a very rough draft and again, does not represent, represent clinical guidance. This is sort of a spitballed effort, if you will, to provide that type of framework or telling the medic what to watch for at the various intervals of time with the ensuing pathophysiology. In other words, at four to 12 hours, the concerns or life threats may be different than at the 12 to 24 hour mark. In crush syndrome, obviously the evolution of compartment syndrome and loss of limb due to compartment syndrome is concerned. The evolution of that will be highly patient dependent, but it's clearly an issue that must be addressed by the medic at various points in the care and should be addressed through telemedicine frequently if available. Now, getting down to the nuts and bolts of the actual treatment approach uh, for the field, we really know that this is an attempt to mitigate the triple threat of traumatic rhabdomyolysis. That triple threat is pre-renal vasoconstriction, intrarenal cast formation, and tubular toxicity. The absolute number one treatment is crystalloids. There's always been discussion in the community about the possible risk of exacerbating hyperkalemia with lactated ringers. We believe that this is an overstated risk and do recommend lactated ringers as a resuscitation fluid. Initial bolus should be two liters followed by an initial rate of one liter per hour adjusted to urine output. Implicit in this is obviously that the medic has an ability to measure urine output, whether that's through Foley catheterization or at the very minimum uh, through collection of the patient's urine uh, and, and, and measuring. Obviously, hypo and hypervolemia are the concerns and, and need to be monitored for. And really, there should be a limit, no more than two to four liters greater than their total urine output. So strict eyes and nose are going to need to be monitored on these patients and the medic will need to cut the fluids back if they're starting to exceed that two to four liters in a 24-hour period greater than the patient's urine output. In a resource-constrained environment, this means a lot of fluid. This one patient could deplete an entire medic's uh, stockpile of intravenous fluids. Thus, 
a better methodology or an alternative to the best practices might be a rectal infusion of electrolyte solution. This is well described in the wilderness medicine literature. Uh, I can think of a recent case that was written up of a Nepali um, expedition in the Himalayas and a Nepali person that was treated using a rectal infusion uh, very successfully. The key there is to use a balanced electrolyte solution to prevent uh, dangerous hyponatremia. And then finally, if none of that's available, obviously trying to get the patient to drink. Obviously, monitoring urine output is critical to adjust your fluid rate and managing your ins and outs. So we're recommending a urine output of 150 to 200 mLs an hour. Obviously, if the patient becomes anuric, this represents a significant problem and telemedicine consultation is recommended. In addition, we believe that most medics will have the ability to monitor urine myoglobin. While they may not have the laboratory capability, most medics will have what's pictured on the next slide, and that is a urine dipstick. The urine dipstick can act as a surrogate instead of blood or an erythrocyte count or an erythrocyte measurement on the urine dipstick. This can act as a surrogate for urine myoglobin. Uh, circled there, you see the blood aspect of the dipstick with top portion of that representing uh, the deep green color being heavy amount of myoglobin in the urine. Uh, this can be trended, observed, and used by the medic to evaluate the course of treatment and the severity of the renal insult for their patient. Let's talk a little bit about hyperkalemia and the cardiac effects. Obviously, this is one of the major life threats that we'll be dealing with in the field environment with these patients. Best case scenario, the medic has the ability to monitor labs uh, and an ECG, so cardiac monitoring. If that's not available, we have to fall back on lab or a cardiac monitor. Worst case, a really bad day, they don't even have a monitor and then are forced to monitor the vital signs for irregular pulse, indicating PVCs, or check and circulatory exam for evidence of decreased perfusion, so loss of peripheral pulse, um, possible arrhythmias. Again, that's, that's a reach. What's pictured on this slide is the EKG or 12-lead ECG of a patient with a serum potassium of 7.1. Notable changes that the medics are trained to observe for include the classic peaked T-wave findings that are found in a minority of patients with hyperkalemia, as well as the loss of P-waves, early findings including QRS widening, um, but that loss of P-waves is fairly obvious here in lead two on this ECG. This ECG pictures a patient with a serum potassium of 8.5. On this, you'll note in the limb leads, the QRS widening and almost sinusoidal appearance. This would be an ominous finding and certainly prompt the medic to uh, administer calcium in some form. So we're trying to lean away from calcium chloride due to the vessel injury aspects of this medication. For that reason, calcium glucanate is the preferred treatment. One gram, 10 ml. This is considered less potent, less irritating the veins and should be administered via a slow, slow push. Potential complications medics are taught are bradycardia, hypotension, and peripheral vasodilation. Sodium bicarbonate. This is a question that frequently arises, uh, in, especially in regards to the field management of these patients. There are no controlled trials of saline-based or crystalloid fluid resuscitation versus bicarbonate, and most of the current bicarbonate recommendations are based only on retrospective observational studies or animal studies. Concern here is that an overshoot alkalosis with the bicarb could actually worsen hypocalcemia in the patient's overall status. However, this might be considered if the urine pH is less than 6.5. This is, again, based on a uh, publication from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009. 
I throw this up as a controversy because the current protocol and the current tactical medical protocol recommends that the medics go ahead and put sodium bicarbonate on board uh, with a dose of one milliequivalent per kilogram IV prior to extrication of a severe crush patient. That may need to be something that we look at as we develop the field CPG and continue to develop best practices based on evidence. Tourniquets. This is a dilemma as well because the current TMEP recommends application of tourniquets universally to the crushed extremity. A high proximal tourniquet is uh, believed to be a tactically sound option. As pictured here, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that this is going to be a difficult extrication and the tactical environment may demand a rapid extrication. Because of that, they may not have the luxury of being able to complete a distal exam to assess for hemorrhage in the crushed extremity. So the thought behind this, I believe, was that application of the tourniquet was, hey, to assist in extrication, expedite, get out of a dangerous environment, and then when the dust settles, reassess the need for the tourniquet on the extremity. Obviously, this is controversial because we may be promoting further harm by uh, decreasing perfusion to a already hypoperfused limb. Bit of a dilemma. I believe the field CPG will say that no tourniquet should be, should be applied unless there is evidence of hemorrhage. Manitol. Again, this is a, another tricky one. We, ha we have no definitive studies in the setting of crush injury or traumatic rhabdomyolysis. Uh, there certainly are no control trials, and the only existing studies we have all have combinations with sodium bicarbonate. So there's no clean measurement of mannitol as an adjunct. So we're recommending that this should be considered for severe extremity edema or impending compartment syndrome, especially if surgical decompression is unavailable. This should be initiated with a test dose, and that test dose is written there. So 60 ml is approximately 10 gram dose of a 20% mannitol solution. The medic will then monitor the patient's urine output over the next hour or two. If the urine output increases by 30 to 50 mLs per hour, that is considered a successful test dose, and the mannitol infusion may be started to assist with decompression of the peripheral edema and compartment This obviously leads into the next question, which is another sticky dilemma, and that is should medics be performing fasciotomies in a prolonged field care environment? That is probably a topic for an another presentation. Um, but we'll suffice it to say, some medics are trained on this, some are, are actually fairly facile, but I would say many would be very uncomfortable with this, and at a bare minimum, teleconsultation with an expert or surgeon should be accomplished prior to even considering this. This brings us to kind of the nuts and bolts of infection wound care. Obviously, broad-spectrum antibiotics are recommended for crush injury. Uh, infection is often complicated or, or compounded by field fasciotomy, but regardless of whether fasciotomies performed, antibiotics are recommended. Most medics carry in-bands, so we're recommending a one gram initial loading dose. Question of antifungals and availability of tetanus in the field environments uh, are always considered. So some of the other common soft medic questions, I promised you some of the dilemmas and questions that they come up with. One of them is, is very straightforward, and this is because they're visualizing putting 12, 24 liters of crystalloid on a patient and anticipating pulmonary edema or possible cardiopulmonary overload. With that, they're all trained to think, hey, if I start hearing crackles in the lungs, uh, is this patient in pulmonary edema because of my fluid overload? 
and they're trained to treat that with a diuretic, so Lasix. We teach them that Lasix is an extremely bad idea in the setting of traumatic rhabdomyolysis only because that's going to compound renal injury and possibly lead to a circulatory shock picture. Other questions that come up, anuria, say my patient goes anuric, is that even recoverable or is this patient at that point considered um, a lost cause? No, uh, we know that for patients with normal baseline renal function that anuria is recoverable and so we encourage them to continue to press uh, treatment on that patient. If they can't perform a fasciotomy, should they just leave the tourniquets on? This is an excellent question and one that uh, probably depends a lot on the operational context and their ability to evacuate. Certainly, if, if the patient is uh, fairly sick and they have evidence of oliguria or worsening renal insult, the risk of reperfusion syndrome is significant in that environment, and we're, we're recommending go ahead and leave the tourniquet on. At that point, the limb has probably been sacrificed. Probably better to err on the side of um, reperfusion, avoiding reperfusion syndrome and the subsequent distributive shock. And then the worst case scenario, which is a really bad day for a medic, is what if you have crush injury accompanying a non-compressible hemorrhage? So thorax or abdominal hemorrhage, surgical, uh, a condition that can only be treated with surgery, and you have no available surgical assets. In this case, obviously, telemedicine, consulting a critical care provider, trauma surgeon is going to be key. Um, but truly, at this point, we'd probably favor a minimal resuscitation of non-compressible hypovolemic shock due to the hemorrhage, rather than exacerbate a non-compressible hemorrhage. So those are some of the dilemmas. My hope is we've given you a brief snapshot of how we're approaching this difficult clinical conundrum in the field environment. So again, thank you for the time today and appreciate the opportunity. So now that you've listened to the podcast, be sure to go to prolongedfieldcare.org and take our quick little five-question quiz. And if you have any questions or comments, be sure to leave those there. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongedfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out. Oh.